Welcome, Phoenix fans, to a special episode of The Burning Bird. I'm Steve Leinert. I'll be doing the color commentary for the Philadelphia Phoenix on AUDL.TV once the season starts. I'm joined by my regular partner in crime, Alexander Shaggy Shragus. Shag, how you doing tonight, buddy? I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. That's good, Shag. It's better than and it's better than the alternative, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely better than the alternative. And we are joined in this special episode by the voice of the AUDL, Evan Lepler. Evan, thanks for coming on, The Burning Bird. Gentlemen, it's an honor to be here. Thanks so much. And Shaggy, are we sure you're doing pretty well? You sound a little unsure. I mean, do we need to get to the bottom of this? Are you feeling all right? Anything yeah. we need to discuss? Yeah, okay, I'll air it. Steve asked me before, I wanted to sweep it under the rug, but if you you guys keep harping on it, I'll explain. I'm usually a teacher, that was my real-life job, but my real-life job is kaput, so I picked up a babysitting gig, and I left the house on Thursday, the kids and the dad were really excited, they were going to build a, um, a tree house, and they were going to build it over Memorial Day weekend, and I don't work on Fridays, so I was excited to come back to a tree house. And I had to do all this work beforehand. I had measured, and I had taken poison ivy off the tree. Well, now I have some poison ivy, and they didn't oh, no. build it. They were like, oh, we did something else this weekend. And then the kids had fun in the pool, and I didn't bring my bathing suit, because I thought today was going to be the treehouse day. So I've been a little, you know, annoyed about it ever since, I guess. That's perfectly reasonable. I'm sorry. See, I knew, I knew something was wrong, Shag. I knew yeah. something was wrong, and you weren't forthcoming, and you made Evan pull it out of you. Evan, thank you for saying something. Thank you. Yeah, well, I'm glad <laughs> we got it out there, and, you know, maybe they will learn something from this, and they'll be a little bit more accommodating and understanding the next time. Yeah. I hope. I, I hope the dad. I, I hope the dad took it to heart and went to work when he got home and started building the treehouse tonight. There's no chance. You know what it is? When I was a kid, I started building a treehouse, and uh, I got six wooden planks hammered into a tree for a ladder before I <laughs> slipped on wooden plank three, and it like did the thing where you, it just spun around because I was only using a single hammer in the middle of the plank to fix it to the tree, and I fell off, and I never got to finish mine. So I was so excited to like live this childhood dream I had of finally getting to play in a treehouse. So it's been a weird day. So I'm I'll saying. tell you. So my, my father, who is personally my biggest fan and will almost certainly listen to this because he is you know, obsessed with everything I do in a very kind but almost overwhelming way sometimes. We had a, a small addition put onto our house probably when I was like four or five years old. And there was a bunch of wood that the contractor had left over that they just kind of left in our backyard, which was more of a woodsy yard. It wasn't very grassy. But anyway, my dad, probably when I was five years old, built a treehouse with that leftover wood in our backyard. And it was awesome. And we played with it. And I had friends out there and we had fun. And, and it was great, probably until like, I didn't use it, you know, probably from when I was five to when I was 10, I used it all the time. And then like five years went by when we never went on it at all. And then I was in high school and had some friends and we went to go use it and went to climb up and we heard a crack and we're like, uh oh, we better get off quickly. And it was never sturdy ever again. <laughs> and it no longer exists, but I've got fond memories of that thing. Thanks. I well, ho hopefully we'll get it done. Treehouse. I grew up in inner city Philly. We didn't even have trees. 
<laughs> this is why you wanted me have on wanted to have me on to talk about tree houses and childhood memories, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, speaking of a childhood memory, I mean, this is a this is as good a place to start, Evan. Uh, you got your start in broadcasting not too uh, long after your your treehouse memory. You were you were apparently in eighth grade on cable access TV. You started calling girls varsity tennis in Sharon, Massachusetts. Is that true? Yeah, clearly you've done your research. That is totally true, and uh, it it is what launched everything that I'm doing today. And I remember being, you know, super nervous about it, and uh, but it was also very exciting to, you know, because you know I I obviously love sports and I love almost every sport, uh, really any sport where there's human beings competing against each other. I'm in on, like you know, horse racing auto racing aren't, aren't really my things because of the, the animals and the cars. I, I respect it. It's just not for me. But pretty much every other sport I can be in on. And, you know, I love to compete myself. I'm very competitive when I play. And, you know, that is good sometimes. But I realized pretty quick that I wasn't a superstar athlete. So, you know, I just love watching games and studying them and paying close attention to the broadcasters. And over the course of time, I'm like, I can do this. This is cool. And I mean, that was when I was in elementary school, quite literally, I kind of had these dreams of becoming a, a sports broadcaster. So, you know, I think every game I've listened to for, you know, the last 25 something years, I've kind of done so with something of an anal analytical eye. And, you know, if I'm at a bar and like there's no audio on the TV, but there's like music playing in the background, I'm like, oh, this sucks because I want to listen to the broadcasters i want to make it a productive learning experience and do i like what they do do i not like what they do how would i how would i adapt you know my style to what they're doing so yeah it's been a passion for a very long time and the first official broadcast uh was eighth was a uh, high school varsity tennis when i was in eighth grade what hooked you back then you know i think it's as simple as getting paid to watch sports you know, like these guys have a job. This is a job. The guy who's on TV, the guy who's calling the action on the radio. And, you know, I've always been interested in, you know, the ability of using language to not only explain a situation accurately and appropriately and poignantly, but also, you know, to I mean, the, the great calls of all time. And I grew up in Boston and we can talk about Boston and Philly if you want to in a bit. But. You know, I grew up listening to the, all the all the Boston broadcasters, and there have been a lot of good ones. I mean, Sean McDonough was calling Red Sox games when I was growing up, and you know, Dave O'Brien is still doing it now, and Mike Gorman's been doing the Celtics for almost 40 years now, and so I mean, these are just guys that I grew up listening to, and and kind of love the art of the way they would use their language and inflection and energy to complement the action, uh, and. You know, I, it's like a lot of people, oh, it's just talking on TV. But for me, it really is a craft to, to study and, and try and perfect. And I think almost every broadcaster would say you, you're never going to have a perfect broadcast. There are always things that you do over the course of a show that you kind of, oh, I, I wish I had that back. But, I mean, it's not all that dissimilar from an athlete in that sense. You know, you, you, it's hard to have a perfect game. And you, you tend to focus more on the things that, you know, the two things that didn't go well as opposed to the 20 things that did go well uh, because those are the things you want to improve. So 
you know, it's always been a, a passion of mine, uh, mostly just because I love sports and I, I think the craft of play-by-play and broadcasting and, you know, entertaining people uh, is, is really cool. So, you know, I, I frankly, like, kind of shake my head that this is what I'm doing uh, in all non-pandemic times, kind of craft a season-by-season career, you know, from one college football season and one college basketball season to one minor league baseball season to the next. And like, I mean, all through my twenties, I would have these like not nervous breakdowns, but like there would be three or four times on the calendar every single year where I would start to feel really antsy because like one season's going to come to the end and like, okay, what's next? Like, how am I going to make this work? Because I really haven't had many full-time jobs in my life. Um, you know, so everything is kind of season by season. And I mean, I spent four years doing High Point University women's basketball on internet only radio. And like, not to minimize that, it's Big South women's basketball. I mean, we probably had a dozen or so listeners on a regular basis. Uh, one of them being my father, of course. And, you know, like I, those repetitions were invaluable for me in terms of developing on the air with very little pressure and little stakes. Uh, and, you know, doing minor league baseball is kind of similar when you're doing 140 games a night, for, you know, for three hours by yourself. You've got a lot of chance to make mistakes. You've got a lot of chance to learn from them and, and try to better yourself over the course of the season and I, I feel really grateful that I've had each of these opportunities like sure I would have loved to be the you know the voice of uh you know an NBA basketball team when I was 22 like Kevin Harlan and Bob Costas and Noah Eagle and some other you know talented young broadcasters who have gotten those opportunities but you know th- those are really 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 hard jobs to get so just having just getting paid 75 bucks to call a, a big South women's basketball game twice a week. Like that was a really big deal for me. And I've always lived frugally. So, you know, making money has never been something that I've, you know, been all that. Uh, I mean, not to say I'm not interested in it, but not, it's, it hasn't been a priority for me. Uh, it's, it's a little bit more of a priority now just because I have a, a wife and a child and a mortgage and, you know, all those kind of, relatively quote-unquote adult responsibilities but you know in my 20s I was just trying to call as many games as I could and trying to get better and you know learn from the people that I think are really good you know like I've never I've never really taken a broadcasting class you know I I think when I was in high school I wanted to go to Syracuse University because that's where all the famous broadcasters go and then I visited Syracuse my junior year and it just didn't feel right. Like the Newhouse Communication School was amazing, but the school itself wasn't for me. Now it was still probably my second choice. If I didn't get into Wake Forest, I almost certainly would have applied to Syracuse, but I, I applied to Wake and was fortunate to get in early decision. And in my admissions essay to Wake Forest, I kind of fashioned myself as, hey, I want to be a famous broadcaster one day and hoped that that would set me apart in terms of that ambition because in retrospect, at Syracuse, if I was a freshman, there would have been a hundred other freshmen like me that wanted to do, you know, play-by-play. So I would have had to just battle for that. At Wake Forest, I was the only one. 
in my freshman class that wanted to do it. So I had opportunities with, you know, Wake TV and and kind of other stuff at Wake Forest that as a freshman that I you know, wouldn't have had maybe until I was a junior or senior at Syracuse. So things kind of work out in funny ways. And, you know, I think like people say it's about who you know, not what you know. And some of that's certainly true. But I also think that, you know, if you dedicate yourself to something, and for me, it's kind of the craft of play-by-play and really diligently try, try to take steps to get better, uh, you can do it. And then when, when young people ask me, you know, for advice, I said, well, you, you got to get lucky, but when you get an opportunity, you got to be ready to crush it. Um, you have to hit a home run on that opportunity because A, you may not get an opportunity even if you deserve it, and B, if you mess it up once, there's no guarantee you're going to get it again. So I realize I'm just kind of rambling life advice right now, and <laughs> I veered away from the question, but that's that's what I do a lot of the time anyway. So anyway, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> your love of sports in general and what hooked you into uh into the broadcast realm and made made you want to stick around so much i mean because you've called field hockey you've called volleyball you've called cornhole you've called axe throwing yeah. um you worked minor league baseball for seven years for the salem red sox the delmarva shorebirds you were a finalist for the uh, AAA uh, Pawtucket Red Sox a couple times, if I'm not mistaken. You've uh, you've called ACC football and hoops, like you said. You've done it all. You know, I mean, it's it's really impressive. I appreciate that. And when you ring it off, run it all off like that, it, it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I've had a lot of cool opportunities, and you know, I'll be 35 this summer, and I hope to have you know another 35 years of cool opportunities if the world ever returns to some level of normality um oh as for my love to sports i mean that's that's my dad like you know i grew up watching games with my dad and he loves sports and i would watch games with him and you know watching patriots games to get together every sunday you know when i was people like give me crap because i'm a huge patriots fan but i really be like the, the first year i remember watching every single patriots game it was 1992. I was seven years old. And the team was 2-14. and 14. I mean, they were terrible. This was when the Patriots were the laughing stock of the league. But, you know, I grew up in Sharon, which is a town next over from Foxborough. So we were really close. And we didn't go to games, but we watched every game. But that, this was back in an era when, if you guys remember, or if you maybe you remember, when home games were not sold out, the games were blacked out on local TV. Yeah. So none of the local Patriots games were at home or on TV. So I went with my dad and his brother and his friend to like a local sports bar. To, I mean, this is 1992, the, the, like the one bar with a satellite dish in like Canton, Mass, I think, Cobb's Corner. And we would watch like the one o'clock in the afternoon Patriots games. And like, that's kind of what I remember. And you know, that, that Patriots team, if you look back, like they lost a lot of close games. So they were terrible. And they always found a new and creative way to blow it late in the game. Um, and like in you know, those days, we always expected them to lose. Whereas in the past 20 years, we've kind of always expected them to win. And it's been an amazing couple of decades on that front. But, you know, that's, that's what I remember. I remember uh, my dad waking me up. I think it was on a Sunday morning, basically asking if I wanted to go to, to the Red Sox game, the Boston Red Sox game for the first time. Because the day before it was rained out and there was a single admission doubleheader. 
and you heard me mention my frugality that that you know probably <laughs> comes from my father as well so you know we, we he like went and bought bleacher seats for the two of us and we watched the red sox get swept against uh, bobby valentine texas rangers red sox got swept in a doubleheader it was obviously a long day 18 innings of baseball we're in literally the last row of the bleachers at Fenway Park. But, you know, like, those are the types of things that I remember uh, about becoming a sports fan. And um, it's just it's just part of my identity. Like, I understand how non-sports fans just kind of laugh and, like, how can you care so much? This is really meaningless. And, I mean, like, I understand it, but that doesn't change how I feel about being passionate about it. Uh, and it certainly changes uh, a little bit when you're in the industry. And, you know, when I spent six years in the Red Sox organization, it changed the way I looked at, like, being a fan of the Red Sox. I still want them to do well because I know a lot of guys on the team. I know Mookie, well, Mookie Betts isn't on the team anymore, but he was a buddy of mine in Salem. And I know Jackie Bradley and Xander Bogarts. And, you know, I... I got to know certain guys that that I still root for but like you know when you're a irrationally detached fan which I'm not frowning upon I love being that irrationally detached fan like you just get irrationally angry about stuff when when you have that kind of personal connection you kind of watch and you're just as interested but you just don't get as angry about it because like you know your friends are trying almost you just kind of feel bad for your friends that aren't, you know, having success. I mean, I remember when the Red Sox blew their massive lead in September of 2011. Uh, like, it was just sad because, like, so many guys on that team were guys that I knew. And I'm like, oh, this, this sucks. I know they're trying. But I don't know. That's, I mean, I could ramble about my love for sports for a long time. That's why these past couple months have been so interesting, you know. And I'm sure that's, you know, the same thing for a lot of people. Like, in a way, it's been strangely liberating because, you know, I feel such a sense of responsibility and obligation to remain on top of kind of all the major sports stories that are going on and know what's happening and, you know, that night's games and just, you know, just kind of staying on top of everything. And because of that, like any social outing, it's like, okay, I got to check my phone. What the score is like, what am I missing? How do I stay on top of the narratives of how things are unfolding? And now it's like, oh, well, there's nothing unfolding tonight. So yeah, what show should we watch? Or should we do a puzzle? Or like, should we go to bed early? Or should I read a book? You know, there's like, I miss sports, but without kind of the, the day-to-day pressure of staying on top of everything. And it's like with Ultimate too, you know, every weekend of AUDL games, like I try to, really not become an expert on every game, but get my finger on the pulse of every single game over the course of the weekend, by the end of the weekend to write about it and talk about it and stay on top of what's going on around the league. And, you know, weekends this spring have certainly been different, but I have been able to be home and not travel. And, you know, it's been a, it's been nice as well, even though I'm certainly starting to get antsy and eager to, to see some live ultimate. How have you, been able to keep that constant practice and keep those skills sharp, you know, that you were talking about in this period where like live sports is so rare. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to be pretty rusty when we come back live. (laughs) I mean, there's certainly a little bit of 
I mean, watching the number of games that I've watched, I mean, one of kind of my jobs for the AUDL right now is, is, you know, the league is remastering, you know, great games from the past to air on FS2. We're kind of doing this other thing for potential international distribution where we're remastering and shortening some games. So, you know, there's other people that's doing the primary uh, video editing, and then I'm kind of watching and, and tweaking and making suggestions of, you know, what graphics should we add here? So I'm, I'm watching a lot of games and, you know, sometimes I'm like, Oh, that sounds good. And sometimes I cringe at something I said. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm still doing live broadcast. It feels like every Wednesday and Thursday night, uh, Wednesday night on Instagram live and Thursday night on Facebook live. So I have a short commute down to my basement and I get to chat with players around the league you know every wednesday and thursday night so that is one way that i'm feeling connected and you know it's just having a conversation like i'm doing with with y'all right now but you know there's a a small level of performance to it and you're trying to you know entertain and create some interesting content that people are you know intrigued to to partake in so i mean i definitely feel like i'll be a little rusty but also hopefully feel like all the the miles that I put on right now. I mean, I feel like I've definitely broadcast for 10,000 hours uh, to steal the Malcolm Gladwell parallel. So I don't know if that's true or not. That's actually interesting whether I, I have broadcast and been on the air for 10,000 10, hours at this point, but I would guess that I have. And I certainly feel, you know, very comfortable when we're 10 seconds to air. Uh, whereas, you know, at some point in my twenties, you know, those were tense pressure filled moments, but now it's like, okay, this is the best part. Five seconds to air. Let's do a show. And, and those are the, the best parts of the experience. Like prepping for games is, is fine and can be fun and you can unearth interesting things, but it can also be tedious from time to times. Uh, but you can't take shortcuts with it because it's so important. And that's what make the, the on-air moments pay off when, when they really click. Getting back to your uh, love, love for sports. There, I mean, it's uh, you're you're actually talking to a very kindred spirit. Um, I I was in the industry for 15 years, and uh, I was a I'm a lifelong Philadelphia sports fan. And uh, like uh, my uncle took me to uh, Philly's opening day and uh, Eagles games and the, and the whole kit and caboodle, just like you, where the uh, we we had to go down to the vet because they were blacked out here in Philly. And uh, he he taught me how to uh, how to how to love the game and respect sports and, and all of that. And uh, I, I ended up working for the Eagles in uh, 2008. And uh, you're right; it does give you a different perspective. It's like watching your friends play, and yeah. you know, and you and you know that they are trying. And it, and it's it really gives you a different perspective. Were you an angry Philly fan, like the prototypical stereotypical Philly fan before that experience? Uh. I would yes, yes I was. <laughs> uh, I mean, but, like, I, 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 one, I know one, the reputation, but I also respect it. Like, I mean, I hate the Yankees with all my heart, but like, I respect in a way just you know the the true Yankee fans, the super dedicated, passionate. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I I, I keep it, res I kept it respectful. And, uh, you know, but I, I, there was times where the team would just do things that were so utterly ridiculous <laughs> that, you, you know, it would, just, it would just blow my mind and it would just leave me asking more questions and wondering what direction they were going. 
and yeah. and uh, it wasn't. I'm, I'm telling you that Super Bowl win in uh, in 2017 went a long yeah. way. It went a long way in relieving a lot of that angst that Philadelphia yeah, sports yeah. fan had. I, I'll tell you. I know that had to hurt a little bit because it did come at the expense of the of your Patriots. And uh, I didn't I didn't mean to bring that up, but uh, no, it's okay. It was, I had a feeling it was coming. And if I didn't have six others, you know, right. with victory, <laughs> I, I, it, would, it would hurt a little bit more. That's okay. It we'll take we'll hurts. take that we'll we'll take that first one. I certainly hate the Giants more than I hate the Eagles. I think we can all agree on that. Yes, that's fair. All right, so let's fast forward here a little bit. You're working for ESPN in 2013. Is that right? So I, you know, people say I work for ESPN. I've never worked full time for ESPN. I've done a lot of you know, quote unquote, freelance work for ESPN or its subsidiaries. So, like, I mean, I did work for ESPN at, you know, the college championships and got a call from a Bristol, Connecticut phone number uh, eight days before college nationals in 2013 asking me to be involved. But, you know, I still feel like like I don't work like ESPN the same way Scott Van Pelt or or Mike Breen or, you know, Dan Schulman does. You know, it's, it's a very different thing. I would love to be in their shoes, but. Uh, I, I, that's where I still feel like I have a ways to go. Did ESPN come to you and say, boy, do we got a job for you when uh, USAU signed that uh, big deal to, 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 with ESPN to, to broadcast the college championships? Or was it you reached out to them and say, boy, I have knowledge of this? It, it was definitely more of the latter. It was the folks at USA Ultimate who are kind of entrusted in making a recommendation to the folks at ESPN. So I remember reaching out to someone at USAU when, uh, you know, a, a former Wake Forest or a Wake Forest alum who I think at the time played for Ring and like was more attuned with the ultimate world than I was, just basically forwarded me the job posting that he probably saw on Facebook. And he's like, dude, this is you. And I'm like, oh, that that is me. Uh, at the time, I remember thinking, like, there's no way I can leave my baseball team for four days in a row. I mean, you're so tunnel vision during a baseball season. And you know, that was my fifth year with the Salem Red Sox. I think I had missed three games the previous four years. So to miss, you know, four games in a weekend seemed, you know, ambitious, but at the same time, like 24 hours later, I'm like, you know what, I'll, it'll be silly if I don't apply for this. So I, I reached out to uh, Andy Lee at USA ultimate and basically, you know, spent a, hour and a half one afternoon trying to write a kind of good cover letter and sent a resume and sent some links to some, you know, ACC basketball that I had done. And, uh, you know, really hoped that I would get the opportunity. But at the same time, I didn't hear anything for like a week or two. And it wasn't something that I dwelled upon. I just was so focused on baseball at the time and, you know, really was kind of out of touch with like the goings on of the ultimate world. I was still playing, uh, you know, more than I am now in the, in the fall and winter, I would go practice with wake teams and play pickup, but I like, didn't, you know, I wasn't hitting control R on RSD like I did when I was in college and kind of those years. But anyway, I, I just assumed it wasn't going to happen. I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. Then the phone rings when I'm in Zebulon, North Carolina, getting ready for a baseball game around five 30 filling out my scorebook and it was a Bristol number. And they're like, Hey, we'd love for you to be in Madison uh, next week. And I'm like, man, this is incredible. 
I need to figure out a way to make this work. And it's funny you 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 bring this all up and we're talking today because I actually woke up this morning to a and we're we're chatting on uh what is it? You forget what day it is. I think it's Tuesday night that we're chatting. Uh, I woke up to a, a text this morning from Mike Cousins, who I think today, Tuesday the 25th, is like the seven-year anniversary to the day that we did Ultimate on ESPN for the first time, and it was a Facebook memory for for him this morning. So he he's t- texted to me and said, you know, time time flies by, something like that, and we had a good back and forth. But uh, yeah, that was that was incredible, you know. I mean, like at the time, I guess I was six years removed from my senior year of college. And, you know, at that, in 2007, when I was a senior, like I was just so there was really nothing I was more passionate about than ultimate and, you know, following college ultimate. And, you know, at the time, trying to be as good of a player and get as good of a captain as I could be. And, you know, but like while still wanting to pursue broadcasting and pursuing broadcasting is really the reason I didn't continue to play club. Like, I think I could have been a a solid player on a pretty good club team, but, um, you know, I focused on broadcasting after college for the most part and never in, envisioned that this type of thing would come to reality. And it did. And I was thinking about it, you know, the other day, uh, Memorial day weekend when I wasn't at college nationals for the first time since 2012. And I'm just like, man, I've, I've gotten to broadcast seven consecutive you know, semifinals and finals at college nationals. And like, that's just insane to me. It's like, cause I mean, people are like, Oh, is this a dream come true? It's like, yes, but I'd never would have dreamed that that would have been possible. Like it was, it's really beyond a dream come true for that to actually be kind of the way things have transpired. Yeah. What would 21, 22 year old Evan Lepler, you know, captaining practices at Wake Forest, uh, say if you went back in time and told him like you, you're going to be doing ultimate as a job it'll just not be in any way you could possibly imagine in 2007 I mean I feel like I would have said like well that's the plan but it would have been a total <laughs> joke you know I mean like here's a funny story at, at some tournament when I was in college we had like a bye and we were watching a game but like we didn't you know we weren't as adept as people are now like we didn't have like fancy you know sideline chairs or anything so i remember i was sitting back to back with one of my teammates and i was looking at the field and he wasn't so i was giving him play by play of the game and he was giving the analysis from just hearing my play by play and and like we, we thought we were hilarious and like so in a way, that's the first time I ever broadcast Ultimate. Literally, there was one person listening, the person I was sitting next to. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that I've, I've had the opportunity to do it for ESPN and, and not just that, but like the AUDL and, you know, to, to travel around the world and do world championships on the beach in Dubai and, you know, in London and, and, and the beaches in France, like... I was really looking forward, obviously, like a lot of, you know, top players to hopefully go into the Netherlands this summer and, you know, hopefully be able to go next summer if the world can again return something uh, to a semblance of normalcy. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really is crazy. I'm, I'm super grateful. I try to remind myself all the time, like, don't ever, ever take it for granted because like it, it is in a strange way, it's perfect for me like it really is 
like the thing I was kind of meant to do, uh, even though, you know, in my formative years of choosing like this specific ultimate broadcasting isn't something I ever would have fathomed possible. But like that's why I covet it and, and treasure it so much is because it really is perfect in so many ways. So, yeah, it's. I'm, I'm shaking my head, walking in my neighborhood right now as I talk to you, thinking about it. Yeah, you even uh, skipped out on one of those Big South tournaments that you loved covering so much in order to go to Dubai. I skipped out on a Big South Women's Championship game. That is yeah. true. Yeah, I, to was, go to I, the- I flew straight from Myrtle Beach to Atlanta and then Atlanta to Dubai. And, like, I had done the Big South Women's Final the year before. So everyone's like, well, where do you have to go? Why can't you be here? And, like... You know, this thing, oh, I'm going to Dubai. It's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Why are you going to Dubai? For the beach ultimate Frisbee championships? And they're like, These, you know, I think I'm full of crap. But uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was my first world championship experience. I mean, I remember in 2013, like, staying up crazy hours to watch the world games from Colombia because of the U.S. Open that year. I got to basically meet everybody on the team on the U S team. And then in 2014, you know, I had done a, a couple, you know, club tournaments at that point, U S open and nationals and then another U S open. So the world's in Lecco, I was in Salem, Virginia, staying up crazy hours in the night to watch some of the big bracket games from that tournament. And Brian Jones, who is my future colleague, uh, was on some of those broadcasts. And then, I mean, really kind of out of the blue, uh, Elliot Trotter from Sky Magazine, who was kind of in charge of the production for the stuff in, in uh, Dubai, reached out to me. And, you know, if it didn't work out quasi correctly on the calendar, I might have had to turn it down. But in retrospect, like, I can't imagine turning that down. That was that was unbelievable. Like, you know, I mean, I, I just kind of had this vision of Dubai as, you know, like a city from the future. You know, and like kind of felt like there'd be like flying cars over our heads and stuff. And that that wasn't quite accurate. But, you know, just to be transported there all of a sudden, like as my basketball season wrapped up and to, you know, get to call that caliber of action. uh, Yeah, I mean, that's that's like another experience. Like if I got to do that one time in my life and like that was the only international ultimate tournament I'd gotten to do. I, I would have feel really fortunate, but, you know, I think one of the reasons it's so satisfying is people felt like, you know, myself and Brian and Megan did a good job and, you know, delivered the, the action in a like respectable, professional, interesting way to, to viewers around the world. And, you know, that has gotten me opportunities to do future world championships as well. So, I mean, in this business and like in most every business, things have a tendency to build upon one another. And I mean, I could literally like go through every single step of my broadcasting career back to that eighth grade uh, when I was in eighth grade doing varsity girls tennis and be like, that led to this, this led to this, this led to this. And, you know, the last thing is leading to broadcasting, you know, ACC men's basketball or Miami Pittsburgh ACC football and like a big November game as well. So it's uh, yeah, I've had a lot of opportunities and this is just making me more antsy to 
to call another game. When are we going to see games again? I don't know. That was one of the questions that we were saving for you. What, what do you think a season would look like at this point for the AUDL? Well, so in, obviously there's been a, a little news the past couple of days in, in terms of like the possible ideas for a, you know, six, seven, eight week type shortened season. And, you know, the, the main kind of idea that I think has been approved by ownership right now is to basically divide the 22 team league into seven different pods six of them that would have three teams and one which would have four teams. Uh, the Phoenix would be in that four-team pod, I believe, with D.C., New York, and Boston, which is a tough draw for the Phoenix. We can talk about that in a bit. But, uh, you know, wh- whether or not that happens, uh, I, you know, I was thinking about it earlier today. And, like, I want to be optimistic. I want to be hopeful. I certainly have a healthy amount of skepticism based upon everything I see and read about the world, but, you know, try to balance that optimism and skepticism to just, you know, if it works out great, it'd be awesome. If not, well, there, there are more important things that we're dealing with than the lack of Frisbee and the lack of Frisbee for me to broadcast. So I I really don't know. Like some days I feel like, Oh yeah, 60% we're going to have a season. And other days, I'm like, eh, it's like 5%, 10%. I don't, I, so, you know, today's probably right in the middle there. I'd say like 40% chance it happens and 60% it doesn't. But I'll be back tomorrow and it just, you know, it could feel very different. So I'm, I'm 100% hopeful every day, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. I'm curious what you guys think. Like, what is kind of the, the perspective in the Philly area right now? not necessarily for the Phoenix players, but just for you guys, like, would it be crazy if, if the season was announced to start in mid July or, or was that like, Oh, I'm ready for that. I, I think the team is, uh, is, is ready for anything at this point. I think they're ready to play in front of no fans. Of course they would love to have things be back to normal where they can have fans come to the new stadium in South Philadelphia and, uh, mm-hmm. It's supposed to be really beautiful. Um, it's surrounded by the link and uh, Citizens Bank Park down there, and you can see the city skyline. And uh, it's it's supposed it's a it's a big difference from the the downtown Conjurhocken uh, site. <laughs> so I know they're really anxious to showcase that. I have been to that Conjurhocken Stadium. Um, I have never called a game there, but in 2014, when I was with the Salem Red Sox for a weekend series in Wilmington, Delaware. And it was one of the few weekends that year that I wasn't broadcasting AUDL. So I was with the team and my broadcast assistant, for whatever reason, I remember had brought his car to Wilmington. So I basically borrowed his car and it was either a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. I don't remember, but drove up and really could only stay for the, it was a Toronto rush game. It was the rush and the Phoenix. And I showed up and, like just you know bought a ticket was a just random single dude showing up buying a ticket probably 10 minutes to game time and you know went and chatted with some of the toronto folks who i had seen the week before uh but you know it was so like hey evan yeah you know who else you chatted with that day did i chat with you you chatted with me (laughs) i was i was i was the head coach of the phoenix that day that's right. And, yeah, I and, was like, why is this? Why is this guy talking to me? Why isn't he coaching his team? 
I was like, I had I had Daryl Stanley and Charlie Hoppus as my assistant coaches, so I usually fair, let them fair. do the work, you know. I went sense. over I went over and I smoozed with the big wigs that came into town. So uh, you're like you're like Herm Edwards, you know, just kind of the program head coach, the, the figurehead, yeah, and letting all the assistants do the work. You got it. You got it. So they were running things. And uh, actually, you were, I remember you in 2014, you asked me specifically, you're like, who's a player that I should look out for in the future of the uh, Philadelphia Phoenix? And do you remember who I told you? Probably Sean Mott. It was Sean Mott. It was <laughs> Sean Mott. Look at this kid now. What do you think of Sean Mott's game now? Yeah, I mean, he's an all-star and deservedly so. Has he had like 50 or more assists three years in a row and – He's, he's just really good. Um, he's just a really good all-around player that I think would probably be regarded differently if he had had more team success to this point, if, you know, in which basically if he had more talent around him. But, like, you could plug Shad Mott in on any, on any starting O-line in the league and he'd be a valuable contributor. There's no doubt about that. So I, I hope for his sake that the Phoenix can – and string some above 500 seasons together uh, in the years ahead so he can get kind of that more respect that he deserves. Well, that's what uh, Jeff George, he wanted me to make a note to you that, you know, that we, uh, the, the Phoenix record is what it is because that's who they are right now. Um, you know, so they, they need to string together some over 500 seasons for sure. But they, uh, they, they are wondering when you are going to call Phoenix game. Well, it was it was supposed to happen. Like it was on our schedule. Philly yeah, at the, Boston. Yeah, the Phoenix Boston game was supposed to be called, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was super excited about that because you know, in a way, those are two teams that I've never had the chance to broadcast before. So, um, and plus being from Boston, and that would have been a you know, I mean, I live in North Carolina now, but uh, at one point that would be a home game for me. Uh, my parents still live just outside of Boston and Sharon. So, uh, yeah, I mean. If, if the new schedule works out and we do have a season and there's a Philly-Boston game, I'd love to, to get up to do that because, you know, let's, like who knows what's going to happen in a game like that. You know, Philly uh, certainly doesn't traditionally have as much talent as an ultimate city as Boston does, you know, historically in, in club and in, in other, you know, pro-ultimate leagues like the MLU. That's right. But, but they have certainly uh, more AUDL experience and, more, you know, lengthy team chemistry. And, you know, who knows what that Boston team is going to look like? Who knows what any team is going to look like if we have a season? Like, who knows what the NBA and NHL teams are going to look like after two months? Like, it, it's, it's such ridiculous times that, <laughs> it's there's, true. like, there's going to be a lot of quote-unquote experts out there, you know, when, if, if and when, you know, baseball or basketball and hockey, you know, return about like, oh, here's what's going to happen. And no one has any clue what is going to happen, either in the world or in the far less important, but things that we're so passionate about world of sports. So, I mean, and in a way, that's what makes it so much fun and tantalizing to anticipate and look forward to. Uh, so hopefully we get to do that at some point. So when the Phoenix win the AUDL championship this year, you won't be shocked? I'll absolutely be shocked. <laughs> Obviously, I'd be shocked. But, I mean, if, if Philly could get out of that four-team pod with D.C. and Boston and New York, that would be – they got to be finishing the top two. That would be, yeah. you know, an incredible achievement for a team. And, like, 
Look, I was looking at Philadelphia's numbers in, in history earlier today to prepare for this podcast. You know, the last couple of years have been very different than that three-year stretch where they won three games in three years. Sure. Like the last few years, they've been incredibly competitive and have beaten a lot of the top teams and just, you know, are in a tough division and continue to build. But, I mean, I, I told you guys earlier, I, I listened to your podcast with Brian you know, kind of rehashing one of those old school Phoenix Dragons games. And like, just the, the way you talked about it in terms of like the level of commitment and, and practice and things we could have worked out and things we've learned, you know, for a team that wasn't very good, like there, there's still a bunch of guys on this team who have those experiences. And I mean, as we saw with New York last year, like, I mean, yes, they got a few great additional players to their team. Uh, which which certainly helps. But, you know, a lot of guys who had below 500 season just a few years ago for the Empire were still on that team that went undefeated and won a championship or were important players. I just posted a piece today with Mike Drost, who's had, you know, a really interesting career with the Empire as a defender who has, you know, been on every single Empire team. So he's kind of seen it all. So, look, I think the the Phoenix clearly have had a, a turbulent last half decade but things are on the rise no pun intended and i mean clearly jeff and christina the new owners are are kind of instilling a different tone and mike arcada has done a good job building things so i mean philly is one of the teams that i'm really intrigued to see what they can be i mean in like the in the prototypical east division right now you know like well, I guess Philly's no longer in the Atlantic. They're in the they're in the South. I'm still getting all that straight. I was gonna be like, oh, Philly has to be able to be better than Montreal and Ottawa, uh, but they're not in that division anymore, are they? No. They're with Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, DC, Raleigh, and the rest of the South. So yeah, like, Tampa. Who Atlanta. knows how how Tampa and Philly are gonna match up, and how Atlanta and Philly are gonna match up, and you know, even Pittsburgh to some extent. Like Pittsburgh certainly uh, has a little bit more ultimate history on their side, but you know, you sign Alex Thorne and you know, Paul Owens is, is growing into a pretty darn good player. And, you know, you add more of the, the local talent that hasn't played in years past. Like, I mean, you guys know the Phoenix far better than I do, but <laughs> I'm definitely intrigued about what they can be. There's players on the Phoenix that would tell you that you know them better than I do, Evan. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they don't know what yeah. they're talking about. I'm just making it up. You actually know. Evan, I um I feel like I over the last couple of years have started doing broadcasting work for the Phoenix exclusively. And one of the people that I took a lot of inspiration from and spent a lot of time talking to about it was Brian Jones because I know him and I have his number. He's sure. easy to call. But you're someone who I listen to a lot, and the thing that I took the most from listening to you is that you might be my favorite person in sports to call a big moment. Um, if, if like Jack Williams is going to black out and score or assist on 13 points in a college semifinal game, like you're the person I want to uh, say it. And in doing that, I, I searched and I searched and I found my favorite clip of you ever. My favorite oh, wow. Evan Leppler clip of all time. Would, do, you, do you mind if I play it now? I'm, I'm a little nervous if this is just a spoof, but yeah, go right ahead. No, it's definitely not a spoof, but it may surprise you. Give me a hint. Uh, it's not Ultimate related, but it might be more famous than any Ultimate clip. 
Oh, it's, is it the, the cornhole the shot? It is, yeah. Back to go off while the airmail goes in. One of the most difficult shots in cornhole. Dennis. I, uh, I just, how are you always able to bring gravity to a moment, even in a sport like cornhole, which like, I would love to watch the cornhole championships, but I imagine that outside of the people that it's specifically directed to, you know, it's not a huge audience. Well, thank you for all the kind words. And you know, cornhole has, has put together an amazing audience in a very short time, which is one of the reasons that they're on weekly right now during the pandemic uh, and continuing to go. Um, and part of me is bummed to not be on those calls, but Jeff McCarragher, who's doing play-by-play -play with Trey Ryder, is doing a really good job. Uh, I mean, I, I had way more fun doing cornhole than I expected to when I initially had the opportunity. Um, the first event I did was opposite the sec football championship game it was like that morning on espnu before the game where like students from alabama and students from georgia competed against each other before the two teams competed on the field and we were at the like the atlanta convention center right across the street from mercedes-benz stadium and i regret i had a free ticket to that game which i believe went to overtime and was unbelievable uh, and passed it up because there was like a, a three o'clock direct flight back from Atlanta to Greensboro. And, you know, my daughter was three months old. And a few weeks before that, that was going to be one of the weekends that I was supposed to be home. Like, and then all of a sudden this cornhole opportunity came to be. So I didn't go to that football game and wish that I did in a, in a strange way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when you, when you call enough games – you start to realize that, you know, like less, less can be more in big moments. And for me, like punctuating calls the right way is something I, I take a lot of pride in and, and certainly don't get it right all the time. So when you say that, like, I'm your favorite person doing that, I mean, that means a lot. But I'm also like, well, I, I still have a lot of a long way to go. Because, I mean, I think about a couple Jack Williams calls that I've had that I want back. And I'm not going <laughs> to mention which ones. But, yeah, the, the funniest thing about that cornhole clip, which went crazy viral after it happened, like, a few days later, is I was at uh, ACC Football Media Day. I guess it was last season. And, like, the day before, that clip had gone viral. And, you know, every social media account, whether it was SportsCenter or CBS or, or Bleacher Report or Deadspin, like they all of them were, were, were throwing it out there on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. So, like, everyone had seen it. And at it, 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 ACC Football Media Day the next day, like, anybody who knew me or knew of me, like, came up to me to talk about that cornhole clip. And I had <laughs> never had that number of people come up to me to talk about like a specific call or even you know really anything I've done in broadcasting to that level and in my mind I'm thinking like this is really cool but like this was you know the fifth time I've done cornhole and if there's a if there's a dopey niche sport that you're going to associate me with it really 
should probably be ultimate. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's still cool that you're appreciating the cornhole because it was really fun to do. And, you know, I'm glad that that call did what it did. Uh, I mean, Damon Dennis deserves all the credit for, for making that shot. And, uh, you know, like, I mean, the goodness, the goodness was just emotion in the moment. And like Trey and I were just like, what, like, what, what, what? Like it was, you know, and, and, and like sometimes it works and it clicks and sometimes it doesn't. And I've been involved in many situations where both of those things are true. And fortunately this one worked and, you know, there are a lot of times when it works and you get no credit for it. And frankly, there are a lot of times when it doesn't work and you don't get any credit. And that's a good thing because people just, you know, <laughs> ease, ease right past it. You know, like, I mean, I assume you guys watched the, the, the match on Sunday afternoon, the Tiger and Peyton versus Phil and, and Brady. I caught snippets. <laughs> OK, well, that was that was it was it was live sports. It was fun to watch. It was Tom Brady. And like Brian Anderson who filled in for Ernie Johnson on the call of TNT. And like, I think Brian Anderson is amazing. I mean, whether he's doing Brewers locally or NCAA tournament or the NBA, like or Major League Baseball playoffs. He did the Red Sox Astros series in 2018 when the Red Sox beat the Astros and ended up winning it all. Uh, it was like he's fantastic. But like one of the things he's probably perhaps most known for, at least he among broadcasters, is he he screwed up the the Kihei Clark Mamadi Diakite call in the Virginia Purdue game, basically the greatest game in the NCAA tournament uh, leading up to the Final Four when Virginia won it all, basically by, by saying you know Diakite for the win and it was for the tie, and like there were a lot of articles afterwards about like how bad he felt, how just like devastated he was that he ruined that call. And the funny thing is Dave Kane, who's the radio play-by-play voice for the Virginia Cavaliers, a really awesome guy and a really good broadcaster, did the same exact thing. Like in that frantic moment, he got that wrong as well. Said, you know, for the win. Do you guys remember the play that I'm talking about? Yeah. The highlight of it. Um, Well, I don't remember any of this broadcasting controversy. (laughs) Well, these are the worlds that I, that I live in on social media and, and such. And, you know, like for me, I'm interested in like how someone like Brian Anderson handles situations like that. Cause I've had, you know, calls that I've screwed up before, but on much, 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 much smaller stages. Uh, so it, you know, it, but like, you know, as a broadcaster that if you get the call right and nail it, it could become part of the folklore for the team or the entire sport. Like, you know, across the world of sports, there's so many, you know, unforgettable calls like the iconic, do you believe in miracles? And, you know, Jack Buck and Joe Buck, see you tomorrow night. And I mean, obviously Jim Nance has special catchphrases every year at the masters and they become part of the lexicon and like in some sense, you, you have a, a little inkling when one of, one of those moments could come, but a lot of the time you have no idea. And if you are fortunate enough to hit it when it happens, like, you know, you, you, you frankly feel lucky. I mean, and it's, and like part, it's not all luck, obviously, because over the course of the years you've, you've spent honing your craft, you try and 
be ready for all those types of moments. But when it happens and you and you hit it well and you're like, yeah, that turned out pretty good, uh, you feel good about it. I mean, one one aspect of my career that you have not mentioned on the broadcast on this podcast, which uh, is is an upset, is like literally my first broadcasting job after college was as the studio host for Appalachian State football on the radio, basically doing pregame, halftime, and postgame. And my first day on the job was September 1st, 2007. I was in a studio on the App State campus in Boone, and the team was in Ann Arbor in Michigan, and App State... Upset Michigan. Yeah, they were still an FCS team at the time, and Michigan was like preseason number five in the country. Yep. And App State won the game. And I remember... Like four days or five days after that game, I drove up to Boone for the coaches show just to like see what it was like, you know, the, the, the coaches show after they beat Michigan. Um, and I remember chatting with David Jackson, who was the radio play by play voice of App State at the time. Like, how do you feel about the final call? Like anything you would like to do differently? And he like shook his head. He's like, no, no, feel, feel pretty good about it. And like that call has been played over and over again. Anytime ESPN shows the highlight of that game. Um, unfortunately, his color commentator, Steve Brown, kind of stepped on him, you know, by like doing like the woo in the booth while, <laughs> while David Jackson's trying, because the game ended on a blocked field goal on the last play of the game. So, anyway, I mean, that's just another memory and, you know, trying to, to get the call right. And I appreciate you saying that. And I'm glad the Damon Dennis one worked out and that's your favorite call. But, uh, there's obviously a lot that goes into it, and you know it's a lot of a lot of work, but also a lot of fortune that goes into getting those big moments right. Well, you, uh, Evan, you tr- you passed on a little bit of that knowledge last year to the um, broadcasters around the AUDL on a conference call, and you you actually said that very thing. You said to all of us on the conference call there, I was one of them. To, uh, you said you told us to save something. Don't go right to the uh, the your best voice. And uh, I kept that in mind the whole year. And when the Phoenix upset Toronto, I went full. I went full throttle. Went somewhere you never been before. That's all. Yeah, that's right. You know. <laughs> so yeah, it was. Uh, it was just some uh, some advice I took to heart was uh, was listening to you last year. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was. It was very insightful. I appreciate that. I'm glad at least one person took something from it. <laughs> well, that, well, now for the AUDL, you do uh, you do disc in, you do AUDL retro, you do the Tuesday toss, you do the AUDL rewind. I mean, what's your favorite thing to do for the AUDL? Wow, I mean, during the season, the Tuesday toss is is a bear every single week. Uh, but like, I really, you know, feel proud for the most part of like what I produce on a weekly basis and trying to, you know, put things into perspective. And it's, it's been super helpful to me uh, as I kind of write some of these AUDL retro stuff to go back and read what I wrote, you know, three, four or five years ago uh, because, and, and a lot of times I'm like, Oh, that's super interesting. And I, you know, forgotten the details and the emotions and who exactly I quoted. So, I mean, during the season, that's a lot of fun. I really enjoy the Wednesday and Thursday night shows I've done from from the basement. Uh, you know, Wednesday nights on Instagram, chatting with three different players each week. You know, and then Thursday, 
we just kind of pick out a different great game from the past and pick out a couple players who either you know are particularly loquacious or had good roles in the game or both uh whatever it might be and you know like i'm not on the air very often when i'm when i'm uh imbibing and you know on those thursday nights i usually have a beer open and i'm sipping on one slowly i don't want to go too hard while we're on the air but uh you know it's it's a more relaxing casual setting i mean last thursday night like mark burton and i started like going off and talking about saved by the bell and a bunch of other (laughs) random stuff like that so you know that like those have been fun opportunities to you know do broadcasts albeit in a very different setting and you know stay connected and revisit some old moments and you know, I think, you know, from the comments, I, I think people seem to be enjoying those those types of things and, you know, getting the perspective and revisiting some good memories. So uh, that, that's that been fun to do and certainly isn't as much fun as calling a game live, but it is uh, it's easier to, to walk down the stairs to my basement than it is to fly to San Diego for a game. So in, in, in that sense, it's it's nice too to to be home and be with my family. You talked about like Mike Cozens. It's been seven years to the day, I believe, since your first uh, ultimate uh, broadcast together, and how you uh, worked with Brian Jones, and uh, you've worked with Ian Toner uh, uh, a lot with uh, doing USAU games. Uh, who was your favorite person to work with in the early days of Ultimate Broadcasting? I mean, or some of your favorite, some of your favorite people. How about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I had a feeling you were going there. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed working with Mike. Um, I actually was fortunate to know him a little bit going into that. Um, we had a mutual friend, uh, Jason Benetti, who was a former roommate of mine. And, you know, he and Jason did Syracuse Chiefs baseball together uh, in AAA. And Jason's now big time with ESPN and the Chicago White Sox. But uh through jason i had met mike a a couple times so like it helped that we knew each other going into it so that i mean and and he invested you know all the time and energy that anyone could hope for into learning studying conversing just preparing for for that experience so i mean that that was a really fond memory if you're talking about like my first early memories of ultimate broadcasting obviously espn had some other play-by-play announcers uh, that that were not quite as beloved, uh, either by me necessarily or by the ultimate community. But with that said, like, I mean, I, I enjoyed working with Jim Barber. He he did not uh, the, the ultimate community did not take it easy on him. But I he I thought he tried, and you know, just it just wasn't the right fit. Uh, and I've enjoyed working with Sean Kenny, and feel like feels like he's you know passionate about and prepares he actually fills in on an AUDL game for me last year uh when I was doing cornhole one weekend so um and then like I've been really lucky to work with a lot of great people and it's really hard to pick to pick a favorite and like I mean that sincerely because people ask me that all the time like each broadcaster I work with has a different strength and a different weakness so as a play-by-play guy like part of my job is to you know, amplify those strengths and, and hide the weaknesses. And like, I'm not, you know, not saying weaknesses to be negative, but like, obviously Brian has the coaching hat. Like he sees the game differently than Ian Toner does because Ian Toner sees it more from a player perspective. 
But like Brian doesn't have that same player perspective. And Chuck Kindred, you know, has the more, you know, he played elite ultimate, but was never a top, top player. And, you know, has the more casual perspective, but like there's no broadcaster I've worked with who has a quicker wit than Chuck. So like, you know, I go back and rewatch games we've done and I still laugh at things that he'll say, cause like I forgot about them and they're great. And, and like of, of all those people, Megan probably prepares the most diligently and like really tries to attack storylines and brings her unique perspective of being a female, but also having played at nationals a half dozen, some odd times. So like, I mean, all these people have, have become, you know, pretty close friends and I really look forward to working with all. I mean, there are other people I've worked with as well. I mean, I don't want to leave out like Charlie Eisenhood who, you know, is certainly more well-known for Ulti world, but calling games with him, like, I mean, he's one of the few people in our world who kind of like me is like 100% dialed in on ultimate at all times. Like that is his primary job, just like during the ultimate season, it's my primary job. So like, he has a different perspective and context and appreciation for certain things. Having done that, aside from the fact that he obviously knows the game really well and, and, you know, played it and has relationships with people all over the ultimate community and brings that perspective. So, you know, like everyone brings a different uh, kind of background. I mean, I did a, a couple games with Kurt Gibson last year. Uh, Kurt also a guest on live with left with James Pollard and, and, you know, Kurt, like, I mean, it was really interesting getting to work with him during some of his kind of maiden broadcasting experiences because, I mean, he basically came to me and he's like, look, I don't want to just do this. Like, I want to be great at this if I'm going to do it. Like, you can see why he's a great player because he basically, he's like, I need you to tell me when I suck. I need you to, like, be very direct. And, like, I, I mean, I think he has this goal of being, you know, as good as Tony Romo is doing the NFL on CBS and you know, like it's not breaking any news or being mean to say that Kurt is nowhere near Tony, Tony Romo is a broadcaster right now, but like that doesn't mean he couldn't get there if he really worked at it. So, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of, a lot of cool people and maybe one day I'll get it, get a chance to call a game with Steve. <laughs> I'd be, uh, it would be an honor for sure. All right. Do you have any questions for us? What, what, in your opinion, is the ceiling for the 2021 Philadelphia Phoenix? Oh, I'm good. If I may, Steve has asked me this question on a previous, uh, on a previous burning bird. We also had James Pollard on as a guest. If you want me to email you the link to that episode, so you can make sure not to cross pollinate. But, um, (laughs) I've decided that the, the Phoenix are going undefeated in 2021. I just, it's so far away that there's nothing really holding me to it. If I'm wrong, I'll be wrong. I'll be the first to say it. But the ceiling is undefeated. I think this team was really good last year. And the biggest change, other than the fact that um, the best players on the team are going to be slightly better and the and the new kids on the team are going to be really good, like Paul Owens, who was actually an okay Phoenix player in 2019, in 2021, is probably going to be a phenomenal AUDL star. But I think the biggest difference is that the coaches have improved dramatically. Nate and Dave Hampson, they are, they are way better from 18 to 19. And just working with them this year, they were going to be better from 19 to 20. And 
again from 20 to 21, I think the leaps have been unbelievable. That's uh, that's confidence from you guys. I mean, I like it. I. Uh, well, it's about time, Evan. We've been suffering. On, we've been suffering here, Philadelphia. Here, for part of me, part of me, like snarkily, you know, sense like, oh, if you think they're going to go undefeated, does that mean they're not going to play any games in 2021? <laughs> I uh, hopefully we play games in 2020 and 2021. To say that they're going to go undefeated, that is, is very lofty. Uh, well, I, I, I would not set the ceiling to be uh, that lofty. But I, I, you know, certainly playoffs and I think, you know, championship weekend, you know, semifinals is probably where I, you know, say the ceiling. But I mean, like, it's, it's hard even to say that. This is a team that hasn't been in the playoffs in five years. So just getting to the playoffs would be a, a big step forward. And I mean, this year, you almost got to, th- I mean, hopefully we have a thrilling eight week season, nine week season, but who the heck knows? I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate the passion and be fun if you guys are right but uh you know baby steps baby steps <laughs> a lot of, a lot of other teams are, are working working really hard to rise just like you and you know like tampa and atlanta you know they have a bunch of good players too and good coaches and they're probably licking their chops being like oh we got this philly team coming in our division they can't hang with us so I mean, that's that's one of the fun things about the whole realignment that is so tantalizing. Uh, and we probably won't get to see it truly in its forms until 2021. But that's true. I, uh, I appreciate the passion on the Phoenix well, for sure. Yeah, I was hoping they would make the playoffs this year and then the uh, leap would be uh, championship weekend in 2021. So maybe I am uh, being a little uh, ambitious in my lofty goal. And maybe maybe I should ratchet it back to just playoffs in 2021. But I just uh, I see I just I see the uh, youth movement here in Philadelphia, and I find it to be very exciting. And I'm very uh, proud of what we uh, at, at what I'm seeing, and and uh, I'm 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 watching this upward trend, and and uh, I I think the rest of the league. Better be on notice that the Philadelphia Phoenix is, uh, is 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 a team to be reckoned with this year and next year too. For sure. I mean, they got to keep the talent together. They got to continue to bring in. I mean, if they bring in a a, cal- a player like Alex Thorne, like somebody new like that each season, they'll be in pretty good shape. So you know, they got to retain and continue to build on that. And uh, you know, obviously, bringing your coach back from one year to another can make a difference as well, which it seems like. Uh, your guys are pretty committed. So, yeah, it's it's. hopefully we get sports again back in our lives sometime soon. That's all I can say. Yeah, all the way around, right? Well, they're, they're talking about baseball on July 4th, and they're talking about hockey and basketball coming back on July 2nd. So I think baseball is uh, a little further away than they think they are. Yeah, but just talking about it, though, is nice to hear. You know what I mean? That the, that that opportunity might be on the horizon as opposed to them talking about shutting it all the way down together is, you know, is just a, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. And the reality is people can talk about this stuff, you know, a month and a half in advance and, you know, a week before it's all supposed to start again, everything could, you know, yep. we could have another Rudy Gobert situation. So yep. it's, it's so unpredictable right now. All we can do is just kind of hope for the best. Yeah, you know what? Now I want to push back. Evan, every year, every other year, every other year, not every year, but every other year in the AUDL, 
there's an undefeated team. And they and they kind of come out of nowhere. It's not like, you know, you can predict an undefeated season, but it's not like we're just getting it. Uh, I, I don't think based on the season that New York had last year coming into, or in 2018, coming into 2019, you know, we're calling them to go undefeated. And a lot of it is how the schedule breaks. Now, granted, I don't know how nicely the Phoenix schedules have broken the last two years. This year, if we're going to be in a pod with New York and D.C. and Boston, that's a tough uh, group to come out of. And last year, having to play New York and D.C. three times, that was tough, too. But there's 2021's a long way away, and I don't think it's unrealistic to, to shoot for an undefeated season. It's, someone's going to have it. The history tells us. It could, why not us? I mean, but you, you went from saying what the ceiling of the team is to predicting the ceiling. Like, you could have said, the ceiling is an undefeated season. A more realistic goal is to go nine and three. And even that would be, you know, pretty, pretty darn lofty. But, like, I wouldn't have given you as much of a hard time about it, I don't think, if you didn't say, you know, I, I, you know the ceiling, they could win any game that they play. But, you know, we, we also need to see some sort of track record I mean, like, I understand that. I mean, there have been three <laughs> undefeated teams in eight years in the league, one of them being the 2013 Toronto Rush. So, I mean, there have been two undefeated teams in the last what, six years, uh, and each of them was, was star-studded cast of characters. Uh, and maybe the Phoenix get there, but uh, and maybe this will fuel their fire. But with all due respect right now, <laughs> The, the track record of the players that are currently on the roster uh, do not measure up to the 2016 Dallas Roughnecks or the 2019 New York Empire. That was a really nice way to put that, Evan. <laughs> I mean, like, I, you know, in a way, I, I, I've heard, like, I, I think of all the teams as my babies, which is a weird way to put it. It's like how Mike Silver has written about all the NFL teams and, you know, Jeff Passan probably thinks of all the Major League Baseball teams. When you're like a national guy, quote unquote, you try to be like as dialed into everything and, you know, be as be respectful, but also honest and truthful, because that's how you uh, gain credibility. So that's that's kind of my mindset when I comment on these these things. Yeah, we're we're homers. And I respect that. <laughs> I appreciate homers. I love homers for for. You know, for my teams, I'm something of a homer as well. But in the AUDL, I don't have my team. I have all the teams. Right. We got you. Well, that but, was, but I, but that you, was a very you fair. Guys were the, you guys were the first individual team, as far as I can remember, to have me on your team podcast. So I definitely will remember uh, this past hour for forever and ever. Oh, man, we, we certainly appreciate you coming on. I mean, it's, this is great. We, we hope you had a good time. Every pandemic, I hope to be a guest on the uh, Burning Bird. So thank you all for having me. <laughs> all right. Well, for Alexander Shaggy Shregas, for Evan Lepler, I'm Steve Leinert. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Burning Bird. <laughs>